Welcome to the Speedway Show. Today I am really excited because I have a very special guest. He is an NEA jazz-renowned Grammy Award-winning saxophonist and Tony Award nominee composer. He is one of the most revered instrumentalists of his time. He has his own music label, which he founded in 2002, and he produces both his own projects and those of the jazz world's most promising new and established artists. Not only is he from an amazing family of talented musicians, but in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, this New Orleans native joined forces with friend Harry Connick Jr. to establish the New Orleans Habitat Musicians Village, the newly constructed community in the city's historic Upper Ninth Ward that provides new homes for displaced residents, including displaced musicians and their families. He is Branford Marcellus. Branford, welcome to the Speedway Show. Thank you, Speedway. First, let's talk about 4MS Playing Tunes. It comes out on August the 7th, is that right? Uh, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say, um, 4MS Playing Tunes, that is some name for your quartet, and I confess, it cracked me up when I first heard it. So whose idea was the name, and how did you come up with it? Um, four Musical Friends Playing Tunes. <laughs> oh. Uh, your yeah. or musical friends. That is, that's not what I thought it was. <laughs> uh, see, that's what you get. You have a dirty mind. Dirty mind. Hang on, you. No, actually, uh, you, you, I think you're closer to the, to the truth than, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it, it, when I, when I make the records, I don't think of titles for songs or the album. And the phrase came about because I had a jazz writer who was pressing me about uh, the concepts for the record, even though I had told him repeatedly that I don't believe in concepts for records. Records can't actually have a concept. Uh, the people who make the records can either have an individual concept or a group concept. And the record is either a validation of the concept or a repudiation of it. And the whole idea of albums being concept albums was more, it started in, in, in pop music, with, with a few exceptions, mm -hmm. like, a, like a Love Supreme by, by John Coltrane. But that was a, a one-time thing. The rest of his recordings didn't have concepts. They went into the studio and they, they played songs. They played the songs they were playing. But somehow it got twisted around. So a lot of what happens in popular culture, we kind of drag it into to, to the jazz world. And he kept saying, you know, well, the record has to have a concept. So I said, okay, yeah, this is what the concept is. Scoring that okay. All right. But that wasn't the reason. The reason, the, my management, they always press me for titles. So I always come up with a stupid title. <laughs> because then that'll give, that'll give me another week. Because when they say that's the stupidest title I've ever heard, they're not going to use that. Then I say, well, I was really married to that title, so I need another six or seven days to figure out a better title. And then I, <laughs> and this has been going on for two decades. So they okay, said, so you know, we need a title now. What's the name of the record? And I said that, and then it was a slight pause, and 
I think I like it. I like it. I'm gonna I'm gonna run it up the flag for it. Said no, I was just joking. No, no, that's a great title. And he kind of ran with it, and I was kind of stuck with it. Oh, that's really funny. So, for musical friends playing tunes. Now, what I understand is, for this particular CD, you guys got together in in a in a. I don't know if it was a studio. It looked kind of like a warehouse. Um, was it was it a church. formal studio? It was a church. church. Okay. Oh, so th- those were pews that you were sitting in. Right. Right? Okay. So you get in the church, and you put together nine tracks in two days. And I remember you saying in another interview that that's how jazz greats like Miles Davis recorded, and the recording I watched had a very improv feel to it. Is there a usual way that you compose, or was that, or, and, and was there something different about this creative process? No, it's the same process we've used for a very long time now. If we, we make records in two or three days. Wow. So I'm thinking, well, you got to have some talent to be able to do that. Boy, oh boy. Well, I think a lot of musicians have the talent to do it. It's just, I think it's a lot of things. Uh, the, 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 the artists, and popular music don't really understand that every day that they waste in the studio is going to be charged to them. They don't really have a conception of how much money is wasted in the studio. And record companies enjoy that because uh, they like the idea of never having to give you any money for the records that you make. So they encourage that you attend award ceremonies and encourage you to bring as many friends as you want and they want everybody to fly first class and we'll get you a limo and we'll do this thing and we'll give you six months to make a record and this is a whole process and at the end of the day with few exceptions most people who make records like that they don't see a dime when, when it's over but in, in, in jazz we don't get those kind of massive record budgets so there's really no mechanism that would even allow us to, to, to take longer than a week or two to make a record because the recording process is really expensive. So wow. we, uh, we, we kind of go around it because we, we own all our own equipment, so we bring our equipment to the church, mm-hmm. and we just make the recording at the church. Well, I thought it was fascinating that one of the things that you talked about was the fact that every time there was a noisy truck that went by, you guys had to stop and start over because of the noise. And I thought, well, it depends, you know, it depends huh? on the soft songs, on the ballads, yeah. And you playing a really pretty song, and then a bus would go by, and you hear, <laughs> in the middle of the court. <laughs> stop. It was really not, not cool. So what surprised me about that was I would have, you know, I have this is the starry-eyed concept of these soundproofed, thick, padded studios. And so when I'm looking at the video of you guys recording and just sitting in pews and just talking about the, the sound coming from outside, I thought, well, that seems like a, you know, it almost seems like such a normal way to do a recording, I was a little bit surprised. So it, it, why the preference for, for such a regular location as opposed to the big, big, padded, blah, 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 blah? For, for, for whatever reason, electronic instruments and songs, albums made with electronic instruments, it sounds great in the padded rooms. 
but acoustic instruments need to have uh, room space to actually capture uh, a true representation of what those instruments sound like. So acoustic recordings made in flat, small rooms sound very flat. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you listen to the recording, there's a lot of life in the recording. If you juxtapose it to other jazz recordings that are made uh, now. And the reason isn't really so much us, more so than it's just uh, the, uh, the, the, the instruments sound better in a larger room. So uh, since most of the recordings, the professional recordings that are made now are electronic recordings, there are no more studios that have those big rooms like they used to have in the 50s and the 60s, and mm -hmm. to a lesser degree in the 70s. So you basically have to go out and create your own studio, find a room. And luckily for me, we, we found a room not far from where I live. And we've been using it for the last 10 years. Well, now you said previously, and we're going to listen to a couple of clips. You said previously that what we're trying to do is figure out, and this is a direct quote, figure out the emotional purpose of each song we play and then play according to, the perp to that purpose, as opposed to musicians who spend their time developing what they call a concept, which you talked about earlier. So let's take a listen to one of your clips. This one is called The Mighty Sword, and I'm going to ask you a question about it. Take a listen. purpose that you were looking to harness in that track? Well, the most of the purpose of a song like that is exuberance. It's a happy song, so we mm -hmm. have to play happy. And I've also heard you say that music is a conversation. So I'm going to play My Ideal, uh, which is the name of the clip, and um, or the name of the song, and uh, I'm going to ask you to talk to us about the conversation that uh, you wanted to have in that one. Hang on. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
that piece? Well, it's not really about a conversation that you want to have. It's a conversation that you're having with the with your fellow musicians. Okay. And if you, if you listen to the entire piece, uh, a lot of the time when I was soloing, uh, our pianist, Joey Calderazzo, would play an idea. And then I would pick up on the idea that he played and continue what I was doing. And sometimes it'll happen with the bass player or I'll play something and then they'll respond to me. And that's where the conversation comes in. It's not a conversation with the audience, per se, because I think one of the great things about instrumental music is that the music can be whatever it is that the listener wants it to be. It's not one of those things where we have lyrics and the lyrics are supposed to dictate for all what the song is about. The song can be about whatever your personal experiences bring to it. So let's talk about... Uh, the Ellis Marcellus Center for Music. I'm going to read a quote that spoke to me from your one of your websites, and it was that the preservation of New Orleans is not simply a matter of physical reclamation. It is also an effort to sustain and strengthen a culture, the incredible artistic heritage with music at its center. That is the city's gift, gift to the United States and the world. Tell us about the Ellis Marcellus Center for Music and what it means to you. It's more about what it means to those kids who are in the summer music program right now. I just saw them two weeks ago. One of the things about New Orleans that we used to always complain about is that it is a city that culturally nurtures so much musical talent, but then due to the economic realities of the place, some of the more talented kids did not have access to proper training or even instruments, and they were playing on broken instruments. And the center and its location uh, in the Upper Ninth Ward kind of allows one a small segment of the city have a, a really high-end training center where they can go with state-of-the-art equipment, state-of-the-art instruments, uh, piano rooms, practice rooms. It's really a it's a it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal place, and and I was really it was it was great because they introduced me to the kids, and they kept saying, you know, this guy's the reason that you guys are here. The kids were looking at me like. I had three heads. They, they, they could care less. And that was the part that I liked the most about it. That was the part I liked the most about it. I, I would have preferred if they hadn't even introduced me to the kids in that fashion. Because yeah. it's for them. It's not something that I see as a means by which I glorify myself. Now, your dad, Ellis Marcellus, has been described as one of the city's most influential pianists, educators, and living legends. Harry Connick Jr. said about him, Ellis Marcellus is the best teacher I ever had, and giving the center his name sets the highest standard for everything that will be taught here. It looks, it looks great. Uh, we have people in place who are not only highly competent, but actually uh, Daryl Dickerson, who's in charge of the audio and the teaching audio classes, was a former school teacher. He taught, he, he had a junior high marching band. So he has a, a, a good relationship with kids and knows how to deal with them. And uh, Michel Jean-Pierre is a very uh, uh, capable administrator, uh, highly qualified, and also from the city of New Orleans. So I, I have trust in, in the people who work there. and. Uh, and their ability to provide a very uh, 
nurturing and very wonderful experience for the kids. Now, in my research, I read about you, your dad, and your brothers, all very musically talented. And this is just a curiosity question, because at the end of the day, you know, one of the things that I believe on my show is that life is all about relationships. Tell me about your mom. She was the jazz master. Uh, she was the whipcracker in the, in the family. <laughs> I, I think as a, as, a, as a woman with six boys in the house, she made it understood that she would kill every single one of us if she had to. <laughs> okay. Because she was just not going to be in that situation where she was kind of overwhelmed and rolled over by boys that oftentimes can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wait till your father gets home. No, I'm going to kill you myself. And uh, it, it was, uh, uh, I think, um, what some people consider our outspoken nature, that comes from my, uh, my mother, not from my dad. Now, I'm always interested in the spiritual practices of my guests, and I, I just wonder, so do you have any particular spiritual beliefs or practices that keep you grounded? I don't know if my spiritual beliefs keep me grounded, but uh, I grew up in New Orleans, so it's, it's a very spiritual place, and we do have spiritual beliefs. Uh, mm-hmm. I come from a, from a, from a, it's an interesting thing, you know, I grew up Catholic, but because of the, uh, the, 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 the culture, the African culture, that is a, a byproduct of slavery, we often have our voodoo stories and our, and, and our voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, and we talk about spirituality in a slightly different way. Uh, we see, uh, Death is a celebration of life, but it's very little little mourning going on at funerals. It's a very different place to be from, and uh, I mean, my spiritual teachings are in line with kind of the way my my parents raised me and the way that the culture down there raises raises you. Mm-hmm. Uh, people people down there don't they're not really interested in you coming home and try to stand on top of the on top of everybody high and mighty yeah. if you do well for yourself. You're expected to just come in and be the same person that you were uh, when you left. And if you don't do that, then the city will turn on you. And I think that that's good and it's fair. Well, that's the sense that I got actually when you and I met. We met at the Beethoven Festival in Winona, Minnesota. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, I would not have known that you were so accomplished. So you've won, you know, three Grammys, played with Sting, led Jay Leno's band on The Tonight Show for two years, collaborated with Harry Connick Jr. And yet, you know, when we met, it was, you were just so down to earth. And I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Does he know he won three Grammys? Yeah, well, one's got got nothing to do with the other in in the way that I see the world. uh You know, it's, it's, uh, some of that stuff you get is a byproduct of working hard uh, and it's a byproduct of being good at what you do. But uh, I've never really, I wasn't really raised under the idea that what you do is a reflection of who you are. It's more the other way around. Who you are is a reflection of what, what you do and how you do it. So I've never really uh, used, uh, what's the word? Yeah, like success or fame or whatever you want to call it. It's not. It's not. 
I already felt validated when I got to New York, even as a kid. You know, I felt loved and appreciated, and I had a strong sense of who I was. And so any level of success didn't really alter a perception of, of who I was. It's not one of those things where I feel special now. I never had one of those Sally Field moments, like when she won the Academy Award, she jumped up and said, you know, oh, you really like me. You really like me. Uh, it doesn't matter to me if they like me. What matters to me is that my friends that I grew up with like me and that I like me. So when you think about the word success, because there are a lot of people who define success based on the things that you just compared, right? They look at the um, level of celebrity. They look at externalities to say, oh, you must be successful because you have a nice job, a nice car, whatever, you're famous. So when you think about success for yourself, how do you define it? Mm. I mean, I... My definition of success when I first moved to New York was as long as I could, uh, as long as I could afford to live in a, a, a two-bedroom apartment, I was successful. <clears throat> so I'm successful. And I'm going to guess you've been able to do that for quite a while now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Apartments are way more expensive than when I got to New York, but yeah, it's been, it's been. I haven't, had, I don't have any complaints in that regard. Well, that's fantastic. So I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, Olivia, my 10-year-old, asked me to ask you, and, and I asked you when we met, and I liked the answer so much, I thought, I should ask him that on air. Uh, she said to me, well, as long as he has been composing and playing music, how then does he still come up with something new that he's excited about playing or writing? What did I say? Um, as I recall, what you said was, I just keep, I continue to learn, uh, just to keep learning, keep listening to, to music, because there's so much music out there that, that we haven't heard. So I just tend to go backwards instead of trying to stay current. Uh, there's so much music by people that we would never have thought to listen to, by Beethoven, by Mahler, by Wagner by Om Kasum, by, you know, uh, 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 Tumani Diabate. There's, there's so much music around the world that you can listen to and can inspire you and give you ideas on, on how to, to write music is that the more information you approve, the more different your music will sound. Because a lot of people in whatever profession you choose, they tend to listen to the same stuff. Because they have this, this uh, they want to be uh, commercially successful or popular, or even though in, in jazz, they want to be mentioned in the jazz magazines. So they tend to try to play in the same manner of whoever is popular at the time. But I just tend to listen as much music as I can. Music, different music, music that's, that's completely different than what I, what I grew up listening to or what I thought I'd like, and uh, I just keep trying to expand my palate. And the rest of it takes care of itself. So then my seven-year-old Jamie said, well, then, um, when I gave him your answer, so does he know what he's going to do next after this album? No. That's a fair okay. question. I have no idea. But uh, we'll, we'll go out and we'll play some concerts, and 
continue to improve as musicians, and then the ideas will come to you. I have faith that the ideas will come. I'm not really worried about it. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was listening to you with my untrained but highly appreciative ear, um, you did your first recital ever at the Beethoven Festival, and that was that was classical, and mm -hmm. it sounded absolutely perfect. Well, okay, except for that one time when you started blowing too soon at the beginning. Other than that, <laughs> other than that, do you do you do you mess up when you do your concerts? Of course, of course. But most people, the people who come to these concerts are not trained musicians, so they wouldn't really hear them. And people like mistakes. People, people even like the, they, they, what they like more than mistakes is the admission that you made a mistake, because it, it provides a bit of humanity in the process that can sometimes seem beyond human. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that the popular adage is, you know, never let them see you sweat, never let them know that you made a mistake. You know, I think that uh, people are actually amused when you make a goof and you go, oops. It's kind of a, it's a great tension releaser. So I've never really bought into a lot of the, the methodology that goes with being a performer. Yeah. I don't believe that you have to pretend to be perfect and that nothing phases you. You just have to keep your cool. You know, you can't go into a tirade or, 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 or let a mistake allow you to start collapsing on stage. But, uh, yeah, I make a lot of mistakes up there. Current affairs. So... We recently had the uh, unfortunate incident with the uh, shooting at the Batman uh, showing. What did you think about that, if anything? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was terrible, but it's, uh, as long as we have these uh, lax gun laws, uh, this is something that we just need to get used to and hope that we're, you know, that it's not one of our loved ones or uh, that it happens to be us in these situations. Mm -hmm. But I, I I don't really believe in the, uh, you know, we have this whole illusion of security thing in our country because these things used to almost never happen. So you hear people saying things like, you know, I want to live in a safe neighborhood. I want to live in this world. Aurora, Colorado was pretty safe until yeah. it wasn't. You know, and a lot of times they use that for euphemisms. You know, they use it as a as a as a sort of uh, uh, catchphrase to mean black neighborhoods. You know, well, I want to move to a neighborhood that's safe. Read, no Negroes. <laughs> so, all right. So here's your wish. You live in a place like Aurora, Colorado. There are almost no black people, and bam, so much for safe. But, well, uh, and then we're always surprised when it happens, right? Because then you hear people on the on who are interviewed say, "I would have never expected it to happen here." Yeah, and since it always happens there, at what point will we cease to be surprised that it happens there? Yeah. You know, I just think that uh, we 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 need to have a ban on assault weapons. Uh, we won't because for a lot of reasons, I think that people aren't really talking about. I think that. Uh, but one large segment of the American population, uh, the, the, civil, the civil rights legislation will always remain as a bitter reminder 
of the government imposing a way of life on top of their heads mm-hmm. and the after effects of that are being felt. I think that school busing was, the forced busing in the 70s was the last straw. And it really did allow guys like Ronald Reagan to come in and usher in a new way because it was, some of it was just really botched thinking by democratic administrations and democratic leadership. And you will always have a segment of the American population who will oppose the government because of what happened in 65. They will always oppose the government and they consider the government intrusive. So as soon as you start talking about assault weapons, then some of these people don't even have assault weapons, but it's just the concept of the government trying to protect the citizenry at the expense of the individual. It will, I don't think that you see any movement on that issue until all of the people who were a part of the civil rights uh, movement, regrettably, including myself, until we're dead. Because uh, you just have all of these people who are stuck in a paradigm, you know? It, it was an interesting thing in the, in the 2008 uh, uh, Democratic primary in Texas. I was watching one of those network news stations, and they break down everything in demographics. And one of the demographics they said was that everybody who was 40 and over are old enough to remember civil rights legislation or that era, it went straight down racial lines. Blacks voted for Obama, whites voted for Hillary. But amongst the younger group, it was just everywhere. They were voting more on what they believed. And I kind of looked at it and I I called my dad. I said, yeah, I got some good news and bad news based on this, 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 uh, the Texas thing is that progress is being made. Unfortunately, we're going to have to die before it actually <laughs> materializes. <laughs> That's the bad news. That's the bad news, but but you know it's going to happen anyway. So, but 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 I can see the progress on 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 the rise on the rise. It's just the fact that for uh, like if you take something, it it, it it seems as non-related as gay marriage, and for. Uh, people my age, gay marriage is a moral issue, but for people my son's age, he's 26, gay marriage is a civil rights issue. Huh. So it's it's only a matter of time. Uh, a lot of the things that we see, the Tea Party, these voter ID registrations, uh, what I what I've said to friends of mine is that it reminds me of a of a bacteria. Because when you have a bacteria that invades your body, and then you release uh, uh, then they, they, they give you uh, penicillin or antibiotics to fight it. The first thing that the bacteria does is it releases a big pile of neurotoxins to kind of combat. It's its own defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. And this is why you sometimes feel really, really bad when you take antibiotics when you have a bad bacteria. But the bacteria don't really understand that they're done for, that they, the antibiotics will almost always win, with the exception of some variant wild strains of strep. They'll always win. But they still try to defend themselves anyway. And to me, a lot of the reactions to this, to the civil rights legislation, reminds me of just this big strand, this big strain of uh, neurotoxins being released by people who are watching their way of life and their sensibility dissipate before their very eyes. But ultimately, it, it's already a done deal. I mean, it might take 25 years, but it's, it's a done deal. It's done. You know, 
And uh, I, I think that that's the way it is for a lot of this stuff. And, you know, in another 20, 25 years, we will actually be able to have a sensible discussion on, on gun control, because right now we can't. With that, that brings us to the end of our show. Brantford Marcellus, thank you so much for joining me today on the Speedway Show. And before you go, I will ask you, my favorite song on, on your album is Tio. What does Tio mean? Uh, Tio is a producer named Tio Macero. Mm -hmm. uh, and he produced Miles Davis Records and Thelonious Monk Records for Columbia Records. So Thelonious mm -hmm. Monk wrote a song and named it after Tio. Oh, wow. How interesting is that? So we're going to go out with Whiplash. And is there anything particular that you want to tell us about Whiplash? Any significance? Mm, just listen to it. It's really good. The drummer sounds incredible. My little young 21-year-old drummer is really playing his butt off on that. And he's uh, your drummer. He's new to the he's new to the group, isn't he? Two years in. Go in peace and enjoy our last piece of Bradford's music. It's called Whiplash.